coming at you from the We Dessert Studio in Houston, Texas. You're listening to The Weekly Brew with Austin Statton, Kevin Cook, and Jeremy Paxton. It's time to sit back, relax, and be informed. Welcome to episode 66 of the Weekly Brew Podcast. My name is Austin Statton. I'm joined this week by my co-hosts, Kevin Cook and Jeremy Paxson. And by the music playing in the background, it is officially Halloween week for only a few more days. And uh, guys, we have a packed episode today. We've got two amazing interviews. The first one is with Chip Reeves, who has five Emmy Awards, a Peabody Award. And uh, he is the man behind the recent 30 for 30 documentary on Five Slam Jamma. Kevin killed that interview. And then also we have a, a great interview with the former voice of the Houston Astros, Bill Brown, who spent 30 years as the play-by-play analyst uh, for TV, so stay tuned for that. But uh, guys, I am finally back from Seattle, finally back from the West Coast swing, and it's good to actually be recording in the state of Texas for the first time in what seems like months. Welcome back to Houston. It's good to have you back. It seems like you were always on the road, sort of living that jet set lifestyle. I guess that's what comes with the uh, the trappings of having the sort of career that you have and the sort of lifestyle that you have. But I do not envy you. I love being in Houston, and I'm here uh, virtually all the time. You really can't get me out of the city. <laughs> and, and, and Jeremy, you actually do explore the city a little bit more and actually do explore outside of Texas, right? Oh, yeah. No, I actually was a little jealous of you. I saw you were in California, just on the West Coast. I love the area of the country. Of course, it's a great place to visit. Couldn't live there, hence why I'm back in Houston. But uh, I'm a little jealous you got to travel as much as you did. Is the reason why you can't live there because of the politics? or No, it's, uh, it's because I, I drive a, a polluting SUV and gas is $5 a gallon. So it wasn't that high. Uh, you know, oil prices have come down a little bit. But I will tell you something that was very interesting. So when I was in Bellingham, Washington, this is a very... Uh, it, it's a town that is very, very blue. Uh, there are a lot of environmentalists there. Uh, but once you get outside of the, the uh, I guess, the city limits of Bellingham, you get into rural Washington. And I have never seen as many Trump pent signs in my entire life as I did from driving to, uh, you know, from our hotel in Bellingham to the six-mile drive to uh, our refinery out in Cherry Point, Washington. But I, I couldn't believe how many Trump Pence signs are out there. And there are some people out there that think that he could actually win. And, you know, with this latest email scandal going on with Hillary Clinton with the FBI now reopening the investigation, can either of you think of, you know, what could possibly be coming next with this presidential election as we come down to the final, what, eight days? Uh, Austin, it's interesting you say that. You know, it's funny when you go to the West Coast, it is really a city dweller versus sort of uh, the rural communities out there in terms of Republicans versus Democrats. I mean, California, for instance, all the major cities are very heavily blue. But then you go out to the rural areas, not just a few miles from L.A., San Diego, San Francisco, and it is it is, you know, red. Uh, deep red, actually. So it, that is sort of interesting you mentioned that. As for the election, this really is kind of uh, a, quite the surprise, I think, coming out from James Comey, who a lot of conservatives have sort of condemned in the wake of not indicting Hillary over, you know, what would arguably be uh, an absolutely indictable offense for anyone if they weren't Hillary. Um, so I don't know. It's it's going to be interesting. What, what's, what's weird about the timing of this is that about 40% of the vote has already been cast, or, you know, between 20 and 40% of the vote, depending on where you are because of early vote. So I'm not sure how much this affects the election. That said, uh, this is an election unlike any other. So anything could happen. I'm sort of interested to hear what you guys think about that. 
Well, I think it just goes to show that you have to be pretty out of touch with the world to think that Trump has even a puncher's chance of winning this thing. So it makes sense that people that are congregated in the rural areas, sort of on the outskirts of civilization, would think that he has a chance to kind of believe in that. So I can't wait to see how disappointed all those people are. Um, it'll be a great source of pleasure for me uh, come a couple of weeks here. Yeah, I can say that I still have really no idea what I want to do with this uh, this election uh, coming up. I'm actually going to be voting on Election Tuesday, then heading to Chicago for uh, for work. And, uh, you know, I for the longest time, I'd been leaning Gary Johnson, but with foreign policy, I just wasn't sure. But, uh, you know, it, it's crazy that Texas is actually a, a toss-up state now. And, uh, you know, your vote really does count. So if you have not uh, registered to vote, uh, that's, I think, a little too late. But, uh, you know, if you are registered, make sure to go out there and vote and uh, make your voice heard. Uh, your vote actually matters in the state of Texas's time. And uh, I, I, I think I'm probably leaning back toward Gary Johnson at this point. But I, I can't see myself voting for either Trump or Hillary. And unfortunately, Texas has pretty strict right in rules. So uh, it is what it is. But, you know, getting to something uh, a little bit different, uh, college football this past week, uh, a lot of undefeated teams fell. Uh, Baylor, West Virginia, Boise State uh, were just some of the top ones that come to mind. Uh, U of H struggling yet again with a, uh, a squeaker uh, pulling out the win against UCF. I'm curious, uh, when you guys look back on this week in college football, what are your initial reactions? What is going on with the University of Houston? I do not understand it because I sadly have not had the time to actually sit down and consume a lot of these games and watch them closely. I've sort of been following them on Twitter, and it's absolutely mystifying to me. I don't understand what is going on with that team. Is Are they racked by injuries? Are they, are they dispirited by all the talk about Herman possibly leaving for elsewhere? It just seems like this team is radically different than what I expected at the beginning of the season. I'm so used to this as a Houston fan. This is very typical to sort of uh, have a lot of fanfare and build up in the beginning and then really just fall short numerous times so even though that's a win it's not a great win it didn't say a lot about what uh you know their ability to play football so I am I am just absolutely mystified and it has really ruined uh my last couple of weeks actually yeah I can tell you just from an outsider's perspective and uh, of course you probably have more insight into the program than I do but uh, it looks like they have significant injury issues it looks like they have issues with depth and uh, to me, I, I think with, you know, all this distraction going on with Tom Herman rumors, you know, whether or not he's going to go to LSU, whether he's going to go to Texas, I think that has to be some sort of distraction for the players on the team. Also, I think the fact that they, you know, were upset at Navy and, you know, they had high aspirations of going to the college football playoff. I mean, if, you know, with two losses now on the team or with two losses now on the season, you know, to both Navy and then SMU. You know, you're not looking at a New Year's Six bowl game. So I wonder if that has something uh, to do, you know, just the team kind of mentally checked out. But, you know, I think it's a combination of things. I think it's injuries. I think it's depth. I think it's, you know, losing two games. I think it's Tom Herman rumors. So that, that's got to be very distracting if you're an 18 to 22 year old uh, student athlete. But I, I think that long term, U of H is still set up uh, to make a great run. I think last year, uh, you know, they had a heck of a season ultimately capping off with a win against Florida State. But, you know, they were in some tough games last year and lost a game against UConn that they probably shouldn't have lost. So uh, I think we're seeing them come back to earth a little bit. But, you know, I'm, I'm going to jump over to the Baylor Bears for a second. Uh, and, Jeremy, I, I know we could probably share the same frustration, but uh, Baylor dropping a one-point game to Texas in the road and on the road in Austin. And uh, the Bears had many opportunities in the fourth quarter to put that game out of reach. Uh, you know, they were in the red zone three times and 
came away with only six points, two of which were field goals. Another was, uh, a, a, you know, a fumble probably around the five-yard line. But uh, the play calling, the offensive play calling by Kendall Bryles just uh, was pretty atrocious. And uh, I, I'm, I'm starting to believe that maybe that coaching staff is starting to check out as well. Yeah, no, it, I think it's obvious that at this point, um, you know, Kendall with all the off the field stuff uh, swirling around his dad, of course, there was a, a Wall Street Journal article over, the, uh, you know, on Friday, sort of got dumped. And I, I wonder, uh, sort of if that had anything to do with that, apparently some of the regents are uh, sharing some of the details about why they fired our Bryles. However, um, you know, I, I didn't really see a problem with the players as much as I did with the coaching staff and the play calling yesterday as, as the reason that we lost to Texas. I mean, this was a very beatable Texas team, uh, very, you know, weak in terms of their overall confidence. I mean, Charlie Strong looks like uh, he's, you know, headed out the door even with this win. But, you know, who knows? Um, yeah, it's just the, the whole thing is just real disappointed. I was just real disappointed to see how much Seth played. You know, he played a lot for, um, you know, he ran a lot. He got hit a lot. I mean, there was that, you know, uh, that concussive hit with Chris Boyd. Um, so there was just a lot of uh, a lot of things that just made me pause. And I just I didn't feel like I was looking at the same Baylor football team that had been playing up to this point. So just real disappointing. However, you know, what's interesting to note about the Big 12 play yesterday, it looks like the Big 12 has played itself out of playoff contention. And that's sort of what I'm thinking about right now is who who now are the favorites for the uh, the initial rankings for the college football playoff. Yeah, so the initial rankings come out on Tuesday night on ESPN, and you know I think Alabama's clear-cut number one. I think Washington's going to be up there. I think Clemson's going to be up there. And then obviously Michigan are going to be up there. I think those are going to be your top four teams. I'm not sure that we're going to have a Big 12 team in the top 10, I mean, and that to me is crazy. But you know those rankings are going to come out Tuesday night on ESPN, and there was also a story that came out this week that said uh, ESPN lost 600,000 subscribers this past month. Guys, that's a high number. I, am I am I wrong to think that you know maybe the cord cutting issue is a little bit more broad, and maybe this is an issue with ESPN? Yeah, I mean ESPN's definitely got issues. The number one issue, I think, being that they are committed to spend so much money. Uh, in 2017, ESPN, this is Brad Adgate reporting this, uh, spent 7.3 billion dollars on content, which is more than Netflix is six billion, NBC is 4.3 billion. That's 1.9 bill to the NFL for Monday Night Football, 1.47 to the NBA, 700 million to MLB, 608 million to the College Football Playoff, 225 million to the ACC. I mean, you go, the list goes on and on and on. They're committed to spend so much money, and they've been relying on uh, a subscribership, uh, you know, those those numbers to sort of uh, basically make their revenue because they're committed for so much and those numbers are dropping precipitously. That's the largest loss in history. This, this month is the worst loss for uh, ESPN subscribers and I don't think it's going to slow down. Uh, some people are saying that might be an outlier. That number might just be like a crazy month number. We'll see a regression of the mean. I don't think so. I think that's consistently what we're going to keep seeing and this article from Outkick the Coverage, uh, Clay Travis I think wrote it, basically says that his, his thesis is their business model is un sustainable and by 2021 they either need to radically overhaul the way that they do business and cover sports or they are going to be in serious financial straits and Disney may not be able to prop them up so I think it's going to be very curious and interesting to watch what happens with ESPN because they need to pivot they need to do something pretty drastic here because what they're doing now is not going to work for much longer you know, I'll be perfectly honest. Outside of live sports, I don't really watch ESPN anymore. I don't watch Sports Center. Uh, you know, I, I guess occasionally I'll watch the you know the eleven o'clock Sports Center with Scott Van Pelt, just because I really respect the guy and the talent that he has. But you know, I, that's one of the reasons why I watch ESPN is just for the live sports coverage. But 
you know, it's it's part of my cable package, so I'm, I'm you know, it's still a subscriber, but, uh, you know, they've had a lot of people over the past two or three years that have been laid off as a result of, uh, you know, poor financials. So, I, I you know, we've, we've discussed this on the show multiple times, and I'm very curious to see what happens with ESPN, what happens with Fox Sports, Fox Sports 1 here in the next few years, especially as people continue to cut the cord, and to see if this is actually a broader issue than just cord cutting. But, uh, to me, overall, when I look at this, I also look back to, you know, this past summer when the ACC was granted their own network on ESPN. I, I think that's another dumb financial decision that ESPN made, especially with losing all of these subscribers. But, uh, Jeremy, uh, I'm curious to see if you have any thoughts or if you want to weigh on it, if you want to uh, weigh in on this subject. This is a really interesting phenomenon because conference expansion and all of this dicing up of the you know historical conferences that we've seen in the last you know ten to twenty years has been driven by TV ratings. You know it's it's been people um, you know subscribing to ESPN, getting their cable packages, and driving these you know SEC networks and ACC networks um, with people unplugging in mass. You know, schools are going to question, you know, whether or not, uh, you know, it's a it's a good idea to realign, given that, you know, the TV revenue just might not be there or they might have to get it from somewhere else. So I, I'm sort of curious, you know, because the next round of expansion is you know, supposedly you know going to take place here when in 2025 for the Big 12. Um, and so I'm, I'm sort of curious what what these conferences do and how they react to the prospect of less money from TV, or if TV money's not an issue, how would they re- how would they align their conferences? Yeah, and this is something that is not limited to just college football. If you look at the ratings for the NFL, uh, NFL ratings are down, um, you know, this entire season. So I wonder if uh, people are starting to look at concussions as a potential factor and just not wanting to watch the game. And if you want to go back and listen, we talked about that. We spoke about this earlier this year uh, with Steve Almond in an episode, and uh, he wrote the book Against Football. So definitely fascinating to look at uh, and just to analyze over the next few years and to see what happens uh, in sports and to see if the landscape changes overall. But uh, you know, one thing that is always constant throughout time is going to be We Desserts. And I actually got back from Seattle on Saturday and made a stop by We Desserts, purchased uh, Snickerdoodles, Kevin's favorite, uh, chocolate chip cookies, and a dozen macaroons. And, uh, you know, we're into that peak season for fall right now. And uh, if you're going to have a party, whether it's a Thanksgiving, Christmas, holiday party, Kevin, I would say that We Desserts is probably the place you need to go. Yeah, if you show up anywhere with a dessert, people immediately gravitate towards you. You become a magnetic personality. People say, hey, where'd this dessert come from? Who brought this? Who is that person? And you are that person if you bring a dessert from We Desserts. It's really the finest uh, things you can possibly imagine, made from scratch with love and care, I believe. I'm pretty sure that those are ingredients that they use. And so they really just do everything uh, terrifically well, and really anything that you could want. So if there's a cake you want, a pie you want, some sort of pastry, they do it all. They do it really well. You can go and you can work with them. They they will, uh, they will help you. They're artisanal, I think. I don't even know what that means, but I know it's a thing that hipsters use sometimes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to qualify them as such. So if you go in, you can get any kind of dessert. You can show up to the party with a dessert, be that guy or that woman, and become popular, really. Isn't that what you've always wanted? Think back to high school. Isn't that what you wanted the most? We Desserts can give it to you. Uh, they're 3411 Kirby. They're very reasonably priced, especially when you tell them you listen to this podcast. You get 10% off your order, so that's uh, even better. Uh, just go in and tell Penny and Jen that the guys at the Weekly Brew sent you by, and they will hook you up, and you will be the most popular kid or person in your group of whatever kind it is. 
that is an absolute fact, and that's something that we actually guarantee. So go into We Desserts. Uh, you know, they have a ton of, you know, they have a great variety of uh, sweet, delicious treats. So highly recommend it. 3411 Kirby here in Houston. You get 10% off if you mention the Weekly Brew Podcast. But in addition to We Desserts, we want to make sure that you follow our social media channels. Just search Weekly Brewcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. You can also follow our website at weeklybrewcast.com. But guys, we have a, uh, a phenomenal episode today. We've got two great interviews. Views. Uh, first one with Chip Reeves. If you if if you are a fan of U of H and U of H basketball, U of H athletics in general, you're going to love this interview that Kevin does. Uh, again, this is highlighting the 30 for 30 documentary by Slamma Jamma, in which Chip was uh, you know the director behind. So it's an absolutely phenomenal interview. Also, Kevin and I spoke with Bill Brown, uh, you know, who just announced his retirement after 30 years covering the Astros as the play-by-play voice. But, uh, you know, guys, I, I can't wait for this episode to start, and I really hope that our fans like it this week. So without further ado, it's time to sit back, relax, and be informed. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. Now joining us on The Weekly Brew podcast is Chip Reeves, uh, who is an award-winning documentarian and filmmaker. Uh, I'm reading off your list here. you got like five Emmys, two Eclipse Awards, and one I think most impressive, the Peabody Award for Excellence in Journalism there. And uh, as we bizarrely know from the presidential debates, they don't just give out Emmys. Uh, Chip Reeves is a guy who's getting it done in the business, and he recently made the uh, 30 for 35 Slamma Jamma, documenting uh, the, kind of the, one of the pivotal eras in college basketball involving my alma mater, U of H, and, uh, and the guy V. Lewis-led team there. Chip, thanks so much for joining us. How are you doing today? Uh, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Kevin. You know, uh, you and I uh, share a lot of similarities in that, you know, we both lived in Houston for a long time and, and love our Cougars. And so uh, it was a real, real honor and, and a pleasure to get to tell this story. Yeah, and it was it was a fun story to tell too because I know you, I've heard some of the, the interviews you've done on the record and so forth. And you talk about how like in survive in advance, you know, Houston's always a footnote to someone else's success, and we see kind of the tortured you know uh, moments of tears and so forth. And that was really kind of it for that story. So it was first of all, let me say a fantastic documentary. I mean, so many moments within it that were, were touching, impactful. You know, I had the tears in the eyes. Really, what I look for in a documentary about sports and what I kind of glean from sports. You know, those really impactful moments. So so congratulations for making a terrific product. I imagine that uh, that everyone else is saying the same thing as well but I'm just kind of curious you know you've been with ESPN before you have a relationship with them uh, walk me through the process how does something become a 30 for 30 do you pitch it to them they come to you how did they how is it decided collectively this is going to be the story that you're going to tell as a 30 for 30 there's a lot of dialogue and you know it, it begins uh, first and foremost with the right ideas and so you know ESPN films it has become kind of the gold standards for sports documentaries and so you can imagine they get pitched stuff all the time. And, you know, this is an idea. They had been pitched a bunch previously. Um, you know, Five Slam and Jamma is a, is a, is a, is a big story and people know it and people wanted to tell it. And so we were fortunate on, on a couple of levels. First and foremost, you know, we've done a lot of work with ESPN over the years. Um, I used to work full time and, and cut my teeth in Bristol and, you know, spent a lot of time with ESPN and, um, and so a few years ago, um, we did the Brian and the Boz documentary for them. And uh, so they, they had some comfort with our ability to not only tell a story from a creative standpoint, um, but also deliver a story from a technical standpoint. And that's very important. You know, there's, there's a lot more to doing this than just coming up with a good idea. There's execution, there's rights, there's a, there's a lot of details um, that they just need to have trust in that production company to, uh, to, you know, cross the T's and dot the I's. 
Yeah, absolutely. And again, I mean, I just let me congratulate you on a product that was terrific. You know, you have many tiers, I think, of these films, and this definitely belongs in the top of them, I think, and not just due to the subject matter. It was very well made. But so I was born in 87. You know, I went to school at U of H. Both my parents uh, are alumni. I got my start covering sports there. I wrote for the Daily Cougar, and I've done retrospectives, and I'm well aware of the importance of Phi Slamma Jamma, like within the U of H sports community, which I'm, I'm pretty well in touch with. A lot of listeners of this show are U of H people. But watching the documentary, it seems like it was so much bigger, and like it kind of consumed the entire city. So I'm just wondering from a guy who saw it kind of firsthand, what was the fervor like at that time when that team was doing those things? It was awesome. I mean, it really was. And I want to kind of take people back to what it was like to be in Houston in the late seventies. I mean, it was just a phenomenal time. You know, you had the Oilers in the love you blue era. You had the Astros with J.R. Richard and Joe Morgan and Nolan Ryan and this, this great team that had so much charisma. You had the Rockets making a magical run, and they had colorful characters of their own, you know, led by Moses Malone, Calvin Murphy, Rudy T., Robert Reed. It was, it was a great time to be a kid growing up in Houston because you're, you're getting exposed to sports, you know, really in the golden age of Houston sports. There was never a time when those three teams – kind of coalesced at the same time and they were all great at the same time. And so the late seventies, early eighties, especially like 1980, 81 was, was, was really this perfect time. But as we all know, we fell short, <laughs> you know, the, the, the curse of the AstroTurf or what are you going to call it? Like anybody can relate to it. Like we could never cross over that barrier. So, you know, we had this, this fever and we were, you know, as a, as a city, we were, we were alive. You know, we had the urban cowboy and Houston was booming. We had all this stuff going on, but we didn't have a friggin' championship. We didn't have the championship. So the thing we wanted the most, we saw our brethren up, up north in Dallas. They were getting their rings and everything. We wanted a championship. So along comes this team, you know, really in 1981, led by Rob Williams, and they're great. They're fantastic. And then the next, and they make it to the final four. And then the next year, they, you know, have this magical run when they win 26 games in a row. They get this awesome nickname, Five Slamma Jamma, and they electrify this city. I mean, the, 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 the city was, was alive and it was excited. It was a great time to be in, in, you know, involved in sports in the city. But when Five Slamma Jamma came along, they really took it to another level. I mean, this was it. This was this, this magical moment. And this was our coronation. This was what was going to happen. Um, and so when they lost to NC State, you know, Jerome Solomon really articulates it very well in the film. He says it's one of the darkest days in the city's history. And, and, and it was. I mean, we've been kicked in the gut so many times. And to have this, this moment taken away from us, um, was just unbelievably painful. I mean, like we all can tell the same stories and we all shed tears, but it's, it's not lip service. It's true. It's really, really true. Um, and then the next year, you know, it was, it was a great team. I mean, led by Akeem, it was a great team and he was obviously a great player, but it, 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 it wasn't the same because it was just this single force leading us back to the championship game. And then, just like that, it was over, you know? Um, and really when you look at what happened to Houston sports, it was, it was kind of over, you know, right then. I mean, 1984, when the, when five slam and jamma ended, 
yeah, the Rockets. I mean, the Astros had a, had a run in in '86, and sort of the Rockets uh, in '86 with the King. But it was it was this this big gap where where we just kind of this magical run of the late seventies and early eighties really ended with five slam pajama. You know, it looked like you spoke extensively with Thomas Bonk, the Houston Post columnist who coined the term five slam jam. And it seemed like it was just a, like a uniquely serendipitous moment of brilliance born out of boredom, which, you know, is honestly the sort of thing that I dream about. Like every time I sit down on my computer to write, I just hope something like that happens to me. But, but how much of an impact do you think that the branding five slam jamma had on bringing the team into the zeitgeist and kind of making them as famous and beloved, you know, not just in the city, but really nationwide as they ultimately were. Yeah, it, it was, it was a great nickname. And, and, you know, that was in an era we had, you know, Magic Johnson and the Doctors of Dunk and, you know, nicknames. We had these really cool posters that we hung up in our room. So we attached ourselves to these themes almost with our sports heroes and sports teams. So certainly the name, the moniker uh, enhanced the legend uh, tremendously. I mean, they, you know, taking it a step further, you know, U of H and the team probably needed something like this to, to propel them into, you know, the, 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 the mainstream. I mean, one of the things that's kind of overlooked, yeah, they were, they were a favorite and yeah, they were number one in the nation. And yeah, they were you know, supposed to be the, you know, national champions that year, but it wasn't like they were the number one team in the nation for the entire season. They really didn't get to the top of the, the rankings until midway through you know, early midway February, early March. And so um, it, it, it took some educating. And so when you got this nickname and you got these ducks, um, it, it, it not only enhanced the visibility of U of H, but it, it, it put them on a completely different stage. One of the things most interesting to me is is the portrayal of Guy V. Lewis. And, of course, people have talked about him. I never knew him personally, but we did devote our entire episode 17 of this podcast as a tribute to him uh, when he passed away. And he, but about Guy V. Lewis, you know, you said you said on the record that he's not just a good coach but a great coach. But, uh, but I think there is kind of a more nuanced portrayal of him as a guy who let players play, let them be themselves, and how that wasn't necessarily the formula for success and how he may have even gotten in his own way. So, you look, obviously he was key in integrating basketball and sports in the South, that was huge. The game of the century brought uh, you know uh, uh, basketball into these arenas we now play. I just watched Villanova win uh, at NRG Arena you know earlier this year. So th- he had an impact, but but do you think that there is some truth to the idea that maybe he did get in his own way? What's your final analysis of him as a coach and as a, as a kind of a leader of men? Yeah, well, I, I separate the two because when you peel back the onion and you look at Guy V as as an X's and O's guys. Um, probably not a, 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 you know, one of the top 10 coaches, but if you, if you look at the, the totality of what he did, um, his kind of revolutionary style, you know, we didn't even get to this much in the film, but the way he stressed defense, um, fast breaking, you know, these guys were in shape, you know, recruiting, I mean, all the other elements, you know, identifying with the kids. I mean, there's, there's so much more that goes into a game than simply drawing up a play on the chalkboard or on a clipboard. Um, and so, you know, Guy V was a great coach and Guy V was revolutionary and Guy V was a pioneer and, and Guy V, you know, changed the game of basketball. So, yeah, you know, I, I totally stand by what I said. He, he was a great coach, but not necessarily for what 
he did during the game. You know, and, and another thing that kind of ties into that idea was, of course, he, he championed the dunk. The dunk was outlawed for a while, as you point out in the documentary. And then Houston becomes kind of connected with it. He calls it a high-percentage shot, uh, you know, kind of a tongue-in-cheek analysis of it or whatever. But but and one thing I didn't sense a lot, I felt like when I did my own research into Fice Lamb and Jamin for the various pieces I've written and so forth, I felt like there was almost um, like a racial tone to some of the backlash about the way they were playing basketball. So I think in the documentary it was referred to as rat ball, you know. But, but in your research and, and, and doing the film, do you, did you kind of get that sense that some of the backlash against the way Houston was playing had something to do with the idea of race and the way people approached it? Totally. And, and that's something that, that we wish there was more of in the film. And, and, you know, one of the really, really difficult things with this film was how do you fit all this in the 78 minutes? And it was really hard. And so, you know, we had a whole section on, on Cougar High at one point in time. And so it, it, it really was something that, that was bigger than just this team and this style of play. Uh, it was a stereotype that, that stuck with his teams for a long time, ever since he went out to Louisiana and got Don Chaney and Elvin Hayes. Um, there was a stigma applied to Guy V, his style, his dress, um, and, and, and the players that he coached. And it, and it seems like it was localized, but it really wasn't. There was resentment um, across the board uh, for Guy V. And, and a lot of that did stem from race. I, it really did. And so when he got to the level that he did, um, there was resentment. And, and a lot of that was, was kind of this institutionalized racism that was still very prevalent um, in the early 80s. And so, yeah, there's a lot of people out there that did not want Guy V to get that championship. And it's, it's sad, but it's true. I mean, this, you know, the things that he did um, for many, many years uh, were not that popular. So for listeners, if you haven't yet seen the documentary, the 30 for 30 of Fi Slam at Jamma, go find a way to watch it. I, I got it on iTunes. I hope you get you know proper uh, uh, you know, remuneration for that. Uh, I, I happened to find it there. I loved it, of course, as I've mentioned before. But, but in the telling of the story, um, you know, it largely becomes about Benny Anders. And you've mentioned in interviews the story of Benny Anders in some ways parallels what has happened to U of H basketball. And Reed Geddes, uh, who's actually been on the show before uh, talking Fi Slam at Jamma, talks about how he gets more questions about Anders than he does about Elijah One or Drexler or that game. Uh, and I'm just wondering, at what point in the process did you realize that the Benny Anders story was going to be so pivotal and so uh, key in the telling of the story of Fi Slam and Jamma? When people just kept asking me about it, I mean, it was, it was crazy that, you know, you know, big-time basketball aficionados would ask me about Benny Anders. And, uh, and so when I hear from Dick Vitale or Jim Nance, or Billy Packer, or, you know, Curry Kirkpatrick, Brent Musburger, these guys that, that, that really are, in a lot of ways, the, the godfathers of, of college basketball. When they're asking me first and foremost about Benny Anders, you know, I, I knew it wasn't a local story. Um, and I knew that we needed to provide a little closure to that. And so, you know, did I think we were going to find him? No, no, I, I really didn't. Um, but we were going to do everything in our power to try to find him. And uh, with the help of Eric Davis and Lyndon Rose and, and a lot of people behind the scenes, um, we were able to track him down. And it was a, uh, it was a pretty magical moment um, when we saw him on the streets. 
I wonder what was his response to being tracked down? Because you look at a character who has in many deliberate ways tried to obscure himself and disappear from the scene in some ways. And I imagine there's a lot of motivation for that. And and yet you find him and he's willing to go on camera and talk to you. What, what was that moment like for him, at least in the way that you perceived it kind of being there? Well, he was when he first saw the guys uh, and when you watch the scene, it, it's very obvious that that we're not on the street. We're, we're obscured. Um, and we're trying, you know, we, we weren't sure how he's going to react. So we were trying to, to stay in the weeds a little bit. And so we were shooting from across the street. Uh, we had a good sense that he was in this building. And so Eric and Lyndon were in a car and when they saw him, they hopped out of the car and, and saw him and, and, and again, you know, he embraced him and, and that's all, you know, I mean, just the most magical thing you could possibly have happen or see. Um, but we didn't know how he was going to react. We didn't know if he was going to run, if he was going to be angry. We didn't, we didn't know what he's going to look like. We didn't, we didn't know anything. We hadn't seen a picture of this guy in, you know, 20 or 30 years. I mean, it, it was crazy. So, um, w- when it happened, um, it was kind of magical because you could see the love and feel the love between these two guys or these three guys. And, um, so we let that play out and then we let Eric and Lyndon and Benny kind of just hang out for a few hours. We turned the cameras off. We gave them some space and um, then we started talking. And so we went out to dinner that night, um, another member of our crew. And, and, you know, so it was, it was uh, five of us went out to dinner and we started talking and, and, and Benny was, you know, a little shaken. He was very surprised. He was stunned. He was excited to see the guys, but he was, he was just shocked. He was totally shocked um, that that we found him. And it, it, it took a while to convince him to do this. And, and in the end, you know, he really wanted to do it because he wanted to be a part of the film. And, you know, even in the end, he didn't in, in classic Benny, um, fashion you know he, he still wanted to do it on his own terms and so you know, he showed up wearing a, a goofy hat and sunglasses <laughs> and he just said hey man this is me you gotta let me be me and so i said come on man you know let's let's, let's, let's just take off this stuff and let's do it and, and then i realized like look this is benny anders he's he was a character in the 80s and he's a character in 2016 and uh you know in some ways i admire him for for being true to who he is I think parallels Guy V. Lewis in some ways, kind of letting him be him for the documentary. It shows. I mean, he is he is very himself. I think, and it it, it kind of obviously it's the the pivotal final moment, and it really makes it. I think. But uh, I want to ping you here. I got maybe two more questions for you if you have a couple of minutes. So I, I don't know in the documentary if you explicitly state one way or the other, um, but I think all the discussion of Fi Slamma Jamma and the three consecutive trips to the Final Four naturally raises this question, and it's how much should we value championships in discussions about greatness? And, and when you talk about the NBA, you know people always talk about Jordan and the rings and the trips, and in the NBA, of course, you got a seven-game series, which is, which is a big difference from the NCAA tournament, which is one and done. So do you think in the realm of college basketball that there is like maybe too much emphasis placed on winning at all uh, in determining historical greatness? You know, it's, it's important. I mean, sports shouldn't be that important anyway, but you know, rings are important. I mean, that's what you play for. And there's a reason why, you know, tickets are going for $3,000. The cheapest tickets are going for $3,000 pop at Wrigley field tomorrow night. Um, 
it rings matter to people. You know, they, they just, they just do. So it's what we play for. It's what we strive for. We don't want the participation trophy. We want the big trophy. And so, you know, I mean, I remember how important it was to me as a Houstonian when the Rockets got the ring in 94. Um, and so it's, it's, it's an unfortunate part of their legacy, but it is a part of their legacy. I mean, they, 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 they didn't win the big games when, when it mattered the most. And so, um, you know, they'll never be in, in the same um, grouping with, you know, the, the UCLA teams or the Duke teams or even these other dynasties. I mean, you could, you could make the argument that this is one of the greatest dynasties in sports. But you could also make the same argument that they don't belong in that discussion because they didn't get the final prize. Man, it's tough, tough to hear. I was, <laughs> I was hoping you come out on more of my end of it, which is that well, championships are overrated. But, but I hear you. I mean, obviously they do matter to people, and there's a reason for that. You know, there's only one team at the uh, the end of the year that walks away victorious. But so I know uh, my listeners, U of H fans, uh, a lot of them are anyway, and I are as interested in the future of Houston basketball as they are the past, maybe even more so. Um, you know, there's been kind of a revolving door of coaches at Houston. You mentioned in the documentary they've sort of fallen off the map. I was there for some of the uh, the tough years, the James Dickey years. And, and I did not uh, get along with him. He didn't particularly care for me, and I never felt like he was the guy. But I, I do like Kelvin Sampson. I like what they're doing recruiting within the city of Houston. Um, Oklahoma football coach Barry Switzer said that I've always said that if I could get the top 30 players that came out of Houston every year, I'd play for the national championship every single year. And I think that, you know, obviously that applies across the board in all sports, a very rich recruiting bed here. But just in talking to people, obviously people that care a lot about U of H basketball, did you get any sense of optimism? Is there, you know, it feels almost like you say, like, this was, this was an era that self-contained and and you know Guy V. Lewis is the the all entirety of, of U of H basketball but but to me I want I want an optimistic ending is there is there a brighter future for U of H basketball on the horizon or is that is that it is that the peak oh I mean it was a pretty good run I mean three final three final fours in a row you know you're going to be hard pressed to replicate that you know and and, and I think I think one of the things that's 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 touched on in this film but is is not um is not expanded on enough is you you had a you had a once in a lifetime gift that happened this 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 miracle almost that that just doesn't happen it wouldn't happen again Akeem Olajuwon is not just going to show up at your door unannounced and say can I play basketball ball for you it's just not going to happen again so can you replicate five slam and jamma? You know, I, I, I doubt it. I, I seriously do. Um, but a lot of that is because you had, in my humble opinion, the greatest center in the history of basketball on your team. And, you know, I, I, I argue with people a lot about this. I think he is the greatest center in the history of basketball. So, He's not coming. He's not coming around again. So, there's my answer. Well, I, I tend to agree with you there too. People call me a homer, but I think that you are, uh, to the extent that I am, also probably a homer. And uh, and this is a Houston sports podcast, and frankly, we love that. So I'm glad you didn't shy away from it. 
Totally. Well, yeah. Chip, it yeah. has been an absolute delight, and i got to say I highly recommend uh, the 30 for 30 documentary. Get your hands on it uh, in any way that, that gives some payment to the to the artists that created it, of course, um, and uh, and certainly enjoy it if you can uh, to all the listeners out there. But to anyone that wants to reach you uh, on social media or, or wants to reach out and, and tell you they appreciate it or maybe, I don't know, uh, hire Texas crew, <laughs> who knows, what's, uh, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Yeah, so so my Twitter handle is at Chip Reeves, at C-H-I-P-R-I-V-E-S. And my company is at Texas Crew, at, at the Texas Crew, at the Texas Crew. Um, and yeah, it'll be on, it'll be on Netflix here uh, in the next week or so. So uh, check it out. Uh, you know, even if you're not a Houston fan, if if you're a fan of life or sports or or Houston or whatever, I I, I think you'll enjoy it. And, and Kevin, I, I appreciate the time and uh, eat them up. <laughs> I love it, man. Well, you take care. It was a pleasure having you on. All right, buddy. Thank you. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. Uh, You're an Astros fan. You're going to like our next guest, and uh, that's Bill Brown, who spent the last 30 years calling Astros games on TV as the play-by-play voice for the Astros. And uh, Bill, I I definitely appreciate you taking the time out of your day and joining us. And you announced your retirement, uh, you know, just a few months ago to close out the season. And, uh, you know, for me, I grew up in the city of Houston, uh, born in 1987. So it's going to be a little bit hard for me next year to turn on Astros. Astros games and not see you on TV. But, uh, you know, congratulations on the retirement. And, uh, you know, as you kind of look back on your, uh, you know, 30 year career with the Astros, is it is it kind of bittersweet to have that retirement announcement? Well, I think there were different emotions at work. Uh, It would have been nice to have had some World Series titles. uh, Sure, but uh, that's nothing anybody has any control over. And uh, just to be Able to do games for a 30-year period of time is, is beyond any comprehension I had when I started in this business. I was lucky enough in the Cincinnati years, uh, the Reds won back-to-back World Series, so I guess I was spoiled very early in life. And I, I kind of knew at the time, even though that was a, a fairly young age, hey, you know, you better enjoy this because um, this doesn't come around very often. And, in fact, it's never come around again as far as a National League team winning back-to-back World Series. It's interesting to me, uh, per the Chronicle, Reed Ryan outed you. I guess your plan was to retire quietly after the season when your replacement was announced, but he had other plans, and he announced ahead of time that you were going to retire, giving the fans an opportunity to say thank you and kind of show their support and, and almost like a farewell tour. And so I know that wasn't your original plan, but looking back, are you glad that you had the opportunity to say goodbye to the fans and they had the opportunity to say goodbye to you and show their support and gratitude for everything that you did for them? Well, I am uh, on a personal level, yes. Um, And Reed has a a very good understanding of how to handle things. Um, And so I have to say that he got it right. And uh, I was trying to use a model that uh, a gentleman I respect quite a bit, George Grand, used. And George was one of the original anchors on ESPN Sports Center. And then he had been doing Cincinnati Reds games on TV for several years. And George just very quietly did his last game, he thought, with the Reds, said nothing, went home. A couple months later, it came out that George was retiring. Well, (laughs) he didn't really retire because he's been doing a few games a year, I think 15 (laughs) or 20, something like that. So maybe he was very prescient in that decision. But he had intended to retire and just didn't want a big deal made out of it. So I'd always told George the last uh, few years uh, when when I knew this was going to happen that I – I sought his counsel on it, and I really liked that model of doing things because, you know, we were still in the race uh, that last day at home, and 
Um, there, it was it was a ball game that was one sided, and the Astros lost it. But who knew going in it was going to be that way? So they were they were still alive in the race, and that should have been the focus, in my opinion. But um, but Reed said, no, we need to let the fans in on this, and I realized he was right, and uh, it was just. It, it was very satisfying. At the same time, it was emotional. It was difficult to handle, but I did realize that was the proper way to do it. So I, I guess that's a long answer to your question, but uh, I, I felt good about it when it was over. Yeah, it seems like two of the greats have retired this year, both uh, yourself and Vince Scully, uh, you know, both iconic in their own rights. And, uh, you know, Brownie, when I when I you know look back on your career, uh, it, it's just kind of mind-boggling to me to see all the different uh, games that you've called. I mean, uh, you know, Craig Biggio's three thousandth hit. You've called a few no hitters. Uh, you know, National League pennant. When you look back on your thirty-year career with the Astros, what is one memory that's going to stick out for you? You know, um, the Astros asked me to come in and talk to the employees. Uh, they have a monthly employees meeting last Thursday, and uh, that question came up. And I said, well, this, this may surprise you a little bit because we don't do the postseason games on TV. The networks do all those games. Therefore, no World Series, no NLCSs, you know. Um, and that, that is something that every broadcaster wants to do, the postseason. So that was disappointing, although, you know, knowing well in advance it was going to be that way. It was great as far as the team advancing to postseason. But, the, but they said, well, if you had to pick, pick one moment, I said, well, I'm going to surprise you with this, but it was the clinching game in 2005 to the NLCS when Roy Oswalt beat the Cardinals in St. Louis. And um, I actually was invited to go by the Astros, but I declined. Um, It's really disappointing as a broadcaster who wants to be broadcasting and to be sitting there in the stands watching a game. It is not a good feeling at all. It's a very unsettling, you know, so, so I declined and I just stayed home and watched. And after the Astros won and they clinched their first ever World Series berth, I looked at my wife and said, I'm going to drive downtown. She said, what? I said, well, I want to see how people are reacting. Uh, This is a very historic moment. And she kind of shrugged her shoulders, so I jumped in the car and drove downtown and, and walked a few blocks from the stadium. I saw people running around, jumping in the air, and um, and getting ready to celebrate. And uh, so I was there for maybe 15, 20 minutes. And I'm, I'm saying that that is the best moment that I had just because of watching the fans' reactions after waiting so long. Now, finally, this first World Series had arrived and to see that pure joy on their faces that to me was uh was as big as any moment that we broadcast so i just i will always remember that you know in a lot of the uh, the articles that have been written about you and the blurbs that people have put out since you announced your retirement one of the things that i keep seeing pop up is that you started announcing uh, very young and you were a sportscaster uh, for the armed forces vietnam network in saigon in 70 to 71 and i can't find any more information or details about it. i'm curious what, what was that experience like and what were your responsibilities and duties there <laughs> That's a good question. People are often confused by that. They say, well, what kind of play-by-play did you do in Vietnam? What kind of sports were you doing? I said, no, it wasn't play-by-play. It was just studio work. It was reporting scores from, um, you know, baseball, football, basketball, hockey from the States. And um, the troops were out in the bunkers, and they had their transistor radios. And, you know, there was television, believe it or not. We also did TV sportscasts. So in the in the larger bases, uh, American bases, they had TV uh, and they could see our 
televised sportscasts and you know we did news and we did um we would re-air ball games about a week later it took at the time you know no satellite transmissions so they had to be shipped in from the philippines or wherever and it would take a few days to to get game seven of a world series we'd be watching it about three days after it happened but that was the way it worked and so the normal day was it was a you've seen the movie maybe or read about it good morning vietnam i worked for that sure. station and um, in Saigon, of course, uh, the, the character played by Robin Williams had had ruined it for the rest of us because he was <laughs> he was just having a great time, and the uh, his commanding officers got pretty upset about that, and he was breaking all the rules, so he um, caused a lot of rules to be written that, that the rest of us had to abide by when I was there. So we had censorship, and I'm reading a sportscast, and it's got to be directly off the Associated Press wire. Or, United Press International Wire, and we're not allowed to ad lib, you know, or any of that on sports, you know, because of this <laughs> this character. Um, but yeah, we just we just read, you know, we do a 15 minute sports cast, and we did it on radio, we did it on TV, and um, and that was the deal. And it was, I I believe, for somebody who wanted to be a sports broadcaster, that was the best possible job to have in Vietnam. I would probably uh, agree with that. That seems uh, like quite the amazing job. And, you know, kind of, again, looking back on your career, uh, you know, you joined the Astros 30 years ago, which was also right around the same time that Milo Hamilton, another legendary voice, uh, joined uh, the Astros as the radio voice. And I'm kind of curious, you know, although you, you did specifically TV and Milo was specific to the radio, did you guys have any interactions or conversations on style in terms of calling games or, uh, you know, kind of bouncing? different ideas off of each other well i i don't think you know we we didn't do a lot of that you might be surprised by it but but he was you know established and well on his way to a hall of fame career when i first came here i was pretty intimidated by his presence and by his resume so i just tried to to hang back in the shadows and um at the time i came here we we had a, a different arrangement we actually switched back and forth between radio and tv so uh, if we were televising a game, and we didn't do them all back then, but if we were televising, I would do the first three innings on TV, he would do the first three on radio. Then in the middle innings, we would switch, and we'd kind of pass in the hallway, and go. I'd go into radio and do three, he'd go into TV and do three, and then we'd switch back. So it was a, a pretty confusing type of broadcast for either the listener or the viewer, but um, that's the way the Astros wanted it at that time, and we only did that for maybe three four years. Uh, but, you know, we, we didn't talk a lot about philosophy. I, I had uh, listened to him when I was in Cincinnati and uh, was well aware that he was one of the top voices around. So he was he was someone who was uh, up there at a higher level, certainly, uh, than, than a broadcaster like me. Um, I always appreciated his passion for the game. And when we weren't on TV, I just sat in the radio booth and I would be in there in the pregame and I would watch how he did his job and how he prepared and listen to him for the first three innings. And so all these things were really, really helpful to me. I didn't ask him a lot of questions about style because I realized his style was something that was not comfortable to me, was not probably attainable. Uh, for me, I had a little bit different way of approaching things, and, and probably Gene Elston was was closer to my style, in my opinion, anyway, more of a low-key type of thing. Um, but we did have a lot of dinners on the road. Milo was very congenial in hosting all the broadcasters and the coaches. You know, if we had a, a rare off night on the road, or he, we'd have lunch on him, and, and so he, he made it um, a good transition, and 
Uh, he was certainly uh, an interesting model to be around and somebody I grew to know very, very well. And kind of sticking inside the broadcast booth, uh, you worked with Jim Deshays for a long time. Now he's getting to, uh, you know, kind of enjoy the World Series with the Chicago Cubs. But uh, more recently with Root Sports, uh, your broadcast team with Ash, Julia, and Blummer, uh, you know, it was just kind of phenomenal to watch you guys and just see the chemistry uh, between all three and four of you, uh, you know, whether it was a home a home series or road series. I'm curious, when it comes to broadcasting, how important is it to, you know, kind of gel together as a unit? so that you can put out a product that, you know, the fans at home are going to enjoy? I think that's everything. Uh, it, it is really the, of the utmost importance. It's, you know, TV is more of a team effort than radio. And radio, the, the voice, the, the play-by-play guy, paints the picture. He has a, a blank palette when the game starts, and he fills it in. And uh, it's totally, totally different on TV. We start with people seeing everything, and uh, they have the benefit of replays and and all the different cameras and, and the different angles that they bring. So um, uh, uh, the broadcasters are more supplemental to the picture. Uh, they don't direct it. They try to, to complement it a little bit. And so, therefore, uh, the, I think, you know, the analyst role is probably the most important in television. And uh, Jim Deshays did that so very well. Alan Ashby, Jeff Blum, you know, all these guys – have given the insight that that only a player can bring and then julia with with that role evolving with her as a sideline reporter has uh, gotten to be very good at understanding the the different players and what their habits are and their nuances and she she knows these guys very well she spends a lot of time with them does many interviews with them and um, is is just immersed in what is going on every day so she can feed off what the telecast is presenting and she can take it either to a different level or in another direction. She's very adept at offering things that um, really do serve in a complimentary way to, to kind of the main course. And, and I think she's as good as it gets. Uh, she's just, she, she rolls up her sleeve. She gets to work. Um, she's uh, just, just there to help people understand baseball and she loves it as much as anybody. She's, married to a baseball player. So um, I, I think her whole <laughs> life is baseball at this point. <laughs> now, you mentioned uh, a minute ago you're not going to come back and do 15, 20 games a year uh, like Grand. And, and I have read rumors about uh, a third book in the work, a book about baseball. I'm curious, uh, you know, kind of tell us a little bit about that and also how else do you plan to spend retirement and do you intend to kind of keep close to the game? Yes, I, I will keep close to the game, um, God willing. You know, if, if I'm able to go down to the stadium, and I, I plan to, um, some of my buddies with other teams have said, gee, you know, it's going to be tough not having you around or, you know, you know what people say. And I said, no, I'll be around. Um, I'll come down and have dinner with you when you're in town. And, and that's what I plan to do. Um, I'm going to leave a little early, but uh, still it'll be nice to renew those friendships. And th- those relationships are really special, and they'll continue whether it's in a broadcasting way or not. Um, but uh, what we've talked about, I- I'm still going to do some work for the Astros um, we, we haven't really nailed it down yet, and Reed Ryan just said to me, take a couple months, come in, we'll talk about it. But what we have discussed in a preliminary way is, is I may go to spring training and do you know a couple games on radio because Robert Ford and Steve Sparks do every game there. They need a break, um, and we've done this in the past. Uh, they take a day off. I move in and do a, a radio game for one of them, and then the other one gets another day off. And so I, I think you know I want to see the new – spring training facility in West Palm Beach, so that would be nice. And um, 
That's probably going to be maybe one week of spring training from what we've discussed. Uh, we've also discussed uh, I love meeting people. I love speaking. So maybe uh, speak to some luncheon groups here and there um, as, as the club dictates and as the interest is there or not there. And beyond that, I don't know. Uh, we, we have talked about some other ideas, and we need to talk a little bit further. But there will be some time off in there, too, to maybe take an Alaskan cruise in the summer, get out of the heat, um, just, just things that we haven't been able to do. Uh, so I think it will be a really nice variety of life. And as you know, once that season starts, you're, you're in it for six months. And, and even if you miss a road trip, um, it still, to me, was always necessary, not necessarily to watch every pitch, but to definitely keep up with the club. And uh, maybe we'd be gone for a week when the club was gone, so I wasn't watching every game. But I, I wanted to watch the highlights. I wanted to read the stories. I wanted to see who had two hits and things of that nature. So it'll be different. It'll be different in that way. Uh, but it's, um, I think it's going to be uh, a different kind of a challenge. And I really think this is good timing for the Astros to get a new play-by-play guy, hopefully who can be here for a while and, and continue the continuity because uh, the fans, I think, deserve – to have um, not only a good representation of what the team is doing and to have the team's story be told well, but also some comparisons uh, down through the years of Astros history. So that was the difficult thing when I came here. I didn't know Astros history. Had to spend that first winter um, uh, just going down to the Dome and looking through the old scrapbooks to try to take some notes and get myself backgrounded in, in what had been the history of this club. And um, and I know the fans want that, so uh, that's that's what I'm hoping we're going to get, and I'm I'm sure we will because Reed Ryan does his homework, and he will pick a very solid play-by-play guy. So one thing that makes baseball interesting to me are the idiosyncrasies, kind of from field to field. You know, a football field is identical, even though the stadium may be different. The field you play on is identical. Baseball, not so. And one of the things that we've been kind of talking about and reading about lately has been Towels Hill and its elimination. I was wondering, what did you make of having it in the first place, and what are your thoughts about getting rid of it? Do you kind of mind something sort of um, uh, you know personal and unique to the team and the stadium going away like that? It's going to require an adjustment, I think. I know um, some fans are upset. I've seen their comments on social media and things of that nature, and that's natural in this situation. I understand the reason for it. I think um, that the people who can uh, stand there behind the center field fence and look through and see the game are going to enjoy that. I think the entertainment areas they're building in center field uh, will allow You know, these days people want to see replays. Uh, the millennials want to want to stand up and they want to walk around and they want to glance at uh, the TV monitor and they want to glance at the field and they want to have a conversation and, and grab a bite to eat. So uh, they're kind of on the move, and that's why this area was designed to accommodate them. So I think that's all a positive. I liked Tal's Hill just because it was different. It was the only ballpark that was arranged this way. Uh, I, I, yeah, to a degree, I was kind of concerned about a center fielder being injured, going back for a fly ball, but it, it never happened in all, in all the years of Towles Hill from 2000 through 2016. It never happened. So I think that was uh, really not a major concern. I, I like the nuances, uh, some of the great catches there, um, the way the ball would bounce around off that flagpole in play. I just thought it was a unique feature. And for that reason, I, I really liked it. I, and I, you know, it's not, not up to me. I wasn't a part of any poll, but um, I think it'll require some adjustment. 
not to have it, and the pitchers aren't going to like it because they're going to be giving up more home <laughs> runs, but the hitters will be uh, hitting more home runs. So it's going to be something that I think it'll take us a while to process and see how things work out. You know, uh, for a long time in this country's history, baseball was it. And you talk maybe a little bit of boxing, too. That was also kind of at its apex a long time ago. Since then, football has come along. Football has been king for some time. I think there's discussions about whether or not that will continue to be true in perpetuity. But we've seen kind of a shift or whatever. But I wonder, as a guy who's so intimately involved with the sport of baseball, covering baseball, communicating baseball to baseball fans, is there something special or unique about the sport of baseball within the field of sport as a whole? Yeah, I, I think um, the the thing that I really like about baseball is it is a conversational sport. And sure, you may have three innings without any runs being scored, but there's always that threat, you know. And now in the game, there's there's so much of a power threat, so high a percentage of runs are scored on home runs that 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 thought is out there for the fans that at, at any point somebody could hit one out and change the complexion of a game. So there's that. Uh, I think there's there are a lot of athletic players who make great plays in the field now. Um, and, you know, a lot of fans of pitching like all the strikeouts. So um, th- this game, to me, ha- has surprised me because in the 94 season when there was a player strike, I thought, oh, my gosh, it's going to take 20 years to come back from this. And then what happened was during the steroid era, we had the home run races. We had Sosa, McGuire, Bonds, and others just hitting home runs like crazy, and that got people involved. So I was surprised the way the game came back so quickly from the strike, and I was surprised at the young people because we had been losing a lot of young fans, and that's, I think, the most encouraging thing to me is that young fans really do like this sport. I think what they like is the power. I think they like the speed. I think they like the unpredictability. We have different teams winning the World Series now during this era. It's not, it's not dominated by one team. And uh, so I, I think that kind of uh, we, we don't know what next season is going to bring approach is attractive to people. And, yeah, I've, I've been surprised by it, very pleasantly so, that, that young people are gravitating to baseball. You just mentioned uh, steroids and, uh, you know, the home run era. And that, to me, brings back, you know, uh, Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa. And I'm curious, uh, you know, Mark McGuire was, you know, arguably one of the greatest home run hitters of all time. You've got guys like Barry Bonds who put up ridiculous numbers throughout his entire career. If you have a Hall of Fame vote, are you uh, more prone to see those guys get the call to Cooperstown? Or do you think that they should kind of, uh, you know, suffer the consequences for um, bypassing some of the rules of baseball? Yeah, that's that's a real sticky issue. As you know, um, I, I'm glad I don't have a Hall of Fame vote because I think I'd be losing a lot of sleep. And I've talked to some writers who admit <laughs> That they do lose a lot. I mean, it's a it's a big deal if you have a vote for this. You, you know, somebody's future, whether he's a Hall of Famer or not, is is riding uh, in a small small way on each vote. Um, I think you know, and I've changed I've changed my opinion. I think that uh, people who broke the rules need to be punished. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, I think it was so widespread during that era. There's just no way of knowing, you know, how many people were breaking these rules, how many got by with it. And and so in that sense, I might have a tendency to be a little more lenient toward the guys who got caught. But, you know, we have these lasting images of Rafael Palmero shaking his finger at Congress and, and things like that. And that <laughs> that kind of an image remains in our minds, too, and kind of works against uh, allowing somebody like Palmero in the Hall of Fame. So I, I don't I don't have an answer for you. I'm just very perplexed about how to treat 
that whole era, but I think more and more writers now are treating it as if, okay, we're not going to pass judgment here. We're just voting on numbers because so many of them point out, well, Bonds, you know, essentially from the time that we think he started using steroids probably could have been a Hall of Famer when he began. Uh, so, you know, there's that argument too. And I, I don't know which way I would come down on it. I'm just really glad I don't have to vote. <laughs> You've definitely called some amazing Astros in, uh, you know, your tenure with the, with the team. Uh, you know, Craig Biggio, Jeff Bagwell, who hopefully will be inducted to the Hall of Fame uh, here this next year. But when you look at the current roster of Astros, I mean, last year they made that nice playoff run. Uh, it kind of faltered a little bit this year, had a lot of injury issues. When you, uh, you know, look back on your retirement and see the way the Astros are going right now under the direction of Jeff Luno, uh, you know, Reed Ryan, is the team heading in the right direction, and are they built for long-term success? I, I think uh, yes and yes. Um, and, and by the way, you asked me a question about a book, and I forgot to answer it, but um, that, that's one of the things that has me excited <laughs> because I, I wrote this sort of a diary of the seas, and, and I changed the title of it. Now it's going to be Breathing Orange Fire, Jose Altuve. So I've, I've written a lot about Altuve and his career, and he's just definitely on a Hall of Fame path right now. I think that is that is such an unusual and exciting story, the story of his life and his career and how he's improved so much and uh, where he finishes in the MVP voting this year will be a big part of that. Um, but yeah, I think I think the direction is strong. I think this winter the pressure is going to be on from the fans to spend more money, but it's difficult to spend that money wisely because the free agent talent is not good. Uh, I think Rich Hill is the top available starting pitcher this winter among those who are free agents, and he's 37 years old. So, you know, uh, fans want the owners to spend money but not spend it in a bad way. Uh, Certainly they need to bolster the rotation. Uh, I think they need a couple of outfielders, uh, preferably left-handed hitters, and that's going to require some some pretty big dollars. But uh, they are uh, headed in the right direction. Now, had they been able to trade for a Jonathan Lucroy in July, that could have really helped not only for this past season but for coming seasons because he's still under contract. And uh, and a Lucroy not only hits well but helps the pitching staff the way he receives. And it looks as if Jason Castro, who's going to be a free agent, may not be back. So that that would have been a good move to make. But I, I know Jeff Luno just didn't want to part with the prospects. So that's the other that's the other part of the balancing act. But I, I think they're right now they're in this window as we say. And they're going to have to make some moves to get better in the short term. If that means parting with more prospects, I believe they're going to have to do that. Again, we have Bill Brown joining us on the Weekly Brew Podcast. And uh, Bill, we definitely thank you for joining us this week on the show. And uh, again, you've spent the last 30 years as the Astros play-by-play voice on TV. And it's just been an absolute pleasure to be able to uh, listen to you call games and also to watch you on you know, Fox Sports, Root Sports. And uh, we wish you the very best in retirement. Well, thank you so much, Kevin and Austin. It's been a pleasure to be on with you guys. I wish you all the success in this venture and uh, hope our paths cross again. Closing time. Again, you've been listening to episode 66 of the Weekly Brew Podcast. And uh, thanks to our two phenomenal guests this week. Uh, both Chip and Bill did a phenomenal job. And, you know, for me personally, uh, it was it was amazing to speak with Bill Brown. You know, I, I'm, I'm a huge Astros fan, huge baseball fan. And, I, I you know, I've, I've spent my entire life watching him on whether it's Fox Sports or Root Sports and it's going to be a lot different without him in the broadcast booth this year and you know there's actual news that came out this past Friday that Alan Ashby 
will not be returning to the team. And he's another, uh, you know, phenomenal voice. So uh, there's going to be a lot of shakeups this year in 2017 in the Astros broadcasting booth. And uh, Kevin, I'm kind of curious, when you look back on the two interviews, what stood out for you? Well, it's interesting to me that Ashby's being forced out, which is exactly what it is uh, that's happening. Um, I know he expressed his desire to return to the team, and uh, and Reed Ryan said, uh, no, we're going in a different direction. So that's the business. You know, he has every right to do that, of course. Um, but just kind of a sad uh, changing of the guard here. You know, it's just the way it works. And Ashby, I think, is 65, 66 years old. So I'm not sure that he will have the opportunity to land with another team, even though, you know, he wants to continue broadcasting. So it's a, it's a tough business at times. Obviously, I thought Bill Brown was uh, was terrific. You know, just the, the quality of his voice, something I recognize and harkens back to my youth. Um, I thought it was very interesting that you were calling him Brownie. Uh, I felt like it was a little familiar, but, but clearly he established that bond with a lot of the people who listen to him call those games, and that just speaks to um, the way that he was uh, embedded in people's lives and sort of had meaning to them. So listening to that, it, it sort of cracked me up. I hope, I'm sure he didn't mind. Obviously, he loves uh, all the people who love baseball as well, but uh, but I was really fascinated by the Chip Reeves interview. I mean, I, that, that documentary was fantastic. If you haven't seen it, go find it. Uh, he mentioned it'll be on Netflix in a couple of weeks. Don't wait a couple of weeks. Go buy it on iTunes. Well worth it. Um, really fascinating story that kind of centers around the search for Benny Anders and uh, and then kind of talks about you know Fi Slamma Jamma and the uh, the impact and so forth. And um, I just you know that's that's my wheelhouse. I wrote about Fi Slamma Jamma when I was at the Daily Cougar doing retrospective pieces, things like that. It really uh, it kind of ties together all the things I cared most about in college in a really satisfying way. So watch that documentary, and I hope you enjoyed the interview. I certainly did. Yeah, and you can also go back to episode 18 of the podcast and listen to our interview with uh, Howard Lorch. I mean, uh, you know, that was Fi Slamma Jamma specific. Well, not quite, but it was Guy V. Lewis specific. And uh, if you're a Kooks fan, uh, you know, a great interview. That documentary, I absolutely loved it. And, you know, going into it, I... I I was thinking, okay, you've got high-profile names like Clyde Drexler, uh, you know, Akeem, the Dream Olajuwon. I didn't think that Anders was going to be, uh, you know, the focus of that documentary, but I thought it was a, a very cool angle. And for somebody that didn't follow the program as intimately as, uh, you know, you would, Kevin, or, you know, look back on it as, you know, so, with so much history, I, I, you know, I wasn't familiar with Anders. And so to me, that was a, a very great angle for somebody that you know just has a high level knowledge of by slam jamma but uh jeremy when you look back on the two interviews uh you know you couldn't be a part of them this week but what were your uh reactions yeah well just uh, just kind of listening to bill brown i mean he he was really the uh the sportscaster of my childhood um and you know because i you know when i was a kid I, I played a lot of little league and so of course i watched the astros on tv and uh, Bill Brown was sort of the voice that sort of defined that experience for me. So um, it's really it's really strange to, to hear about him retiring. Of course, um, you know uh, my my childhood self will always remember him as the voice of the Astros. Of course, you know also Milo Hamilton has that iconic voice. But in terms of uh, you know TV, Bill Brown was just um, you know he he made you feel like he was you were right there watching the game uh, in the Astrodome. So um, just a real just a real you know uh, sad thing to see him retiring. But it was great to, to have him on the show. Absolutely. So thanks to both Chip and Bill for joining us on this week's show. But and guys, if you really like the content that you hear each week, you like the interviews, let us know on iTunes. And Kevin, uh, you know, tell us about iTunes reviews and how our listeners can get involved. What do we have to do? Think about the interviews we had this week. 
Bill Brown, a legend, a living legend. Chip Reeves uh, produced one of the, in my opinion, best 30 for 30 documentaries. Certainly both very relevant to the Houstonians' experience of the world of sports. What must we do to get more iTunes reviews? I know I sound pathetic. I, I can hear it in my voice even as I'm listening to it now. But those iTunes reviews really help us. Uh, they're very impressive. They help us move up the rankings, the charts on iTunes. They uh, Even things like guests may go look at our iTunes page and be like, how many reviews do these people have? And so that does impact things. We certainly could use them. And frankly, we feel like we deserve them. So if you are a listener, you have enjoyed some of the interviews we've had. We've had really terrific interviews over the year uh, that we've been doing this. Then go over to iTunes. Subscribe, of course, if you're not already. If you're listening on SoundCloud, I would recommend you go subscribe on iTunes. That helps us more. It's, it's more consistent. And then also go click on ratings and reviews. Leave us a five-star review with a little blurb. We will read it out at the end of the episode. You might not know that if you're a new listener because uh, we have read all 59 of the uh, reviews we've gotten on the end of the show. So it's been a little while since we've gotten one. So do it. We need it. It helps us. And frankly, uh, it can be something you feel good about. You know, it kind of helps you sleep better at night. So uh, you should not be sleeping well if you're listening to the show and you haven't left a review. But uh, if you'd like that peace of mind, then, then go leave us a five-star review with a blurb. And we will read it out, and you'll be sort of famous. Absolutely. And everyone wants fame. And why not do it here in the city of Houston, uh, you know, through the Weekly Brew Podcast, the voice of Houston. So, uh, you know, we have the voice of the Astros on this week. And, you know, we provide, uh, you know, the voice of Houston each week. So go to iTunes, tell us what you like. Uh, give us feedback. Uh, you know, feel free to give us show ideas we're gonna take all of that into consideration but if you also want to give us feedback we suggest that you look at our social media platforms as well you can just search weekly brewcast on facebook twitter instagram and youtube and uh, you can also look at our website weeklybrewcast.com but uh, guys i really enjoyed this week's episode it was uh you know two phenomenal guests uh, covering uh things that were important to the city by slam pajama and astros baseball for the last 30 years so uh, thanks to chip reeves and bill brown for joining us on this week's show and on behalf of my co-hosts this week kevin cook and jeremy paxton i'm austin staten we'll see you next week and guys remember no matter who you are where you go or what you do this week always always Brew responsibly. You've been listening to the Weekly Brew. 